this week on Hope for the Broken. Listen, if God invaded the mess surrounded the very first Christmas, don't you think he can invade your mess and mine? You better believe it. Christmas is an announcement that God loves you. But more than God loving you, God sees you, even in your filth, even in the muck and the mire. And he came to that very location and brought his son Jesus to die a death that we deserve, not him. And that by faith and trust in him, we can have a relationship with this holy God and have hope even in the most desperate of situations. Welcome to Hope for the Broken, the audio podcast ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Mount Pleasant, Texas. I'm your host, Austin Mahoney. We exist to become a gospel-centered community, redeeming brokenness through hope in Jesus Christ. At Trinity, we believe we are all broken and in need of the redeeming hope found in Jesus. For more information about our church, visit us on our website at trinitytx.org. This week, we continue our series called Let Earth Receive Her King. Here's our pastor, Chris Wigley, with part three titled, The King Delivered. Listen, we are in the third week of a teaching series, uh, a Christmas teaching series that we've entitled Let Earth Receive Her King. And more than just a a section of a song, Joy to the World, it is a statement that we have an opportunity to receive the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the coming of Jesus. And that is exactly what we celebrate this time of year. And so we've talked so far about the King promised. We talked about the king announced last week, and this week we're going to talk about how the king is delivered. So I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the New Testament book of Colossians. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to study and focus in on verses 15 through 20 here this morning. I once heard a preacher say that the Bible is deep enough for a theologian to drown, yet shallow enough for a child of God to wade in. You know, I'm sure that you found that to be the case in your own personal time, in your own study, in your own reading of the Holy Scriptures. You know, I hold a master's degree in theology, and there is still, it never ceases to amaze me that the profundity of this book that often remains a mystery, even for the years of my life that I've given to study it. And it, it so it rings true that it is deep enough to wait, uh, to drown in, but yet simple enough to wade And the reason why I point that out this morning is because we're going to dive into some of the deeper waters here today. When we talk about the king delivered, we're talking about the coming, the birth of Christ, and specifically the incarnation of Christ. And there's no way that I could do justice to the topic of the incarnation of Christ. It is a, it is a a deep theological understanding that fits underneath the umbrella of the doctrine of Christology, which means the study of Christ. And there's no way we can exhaust even the component of the incarnation of Jesus here today. Even a series of sermons would leave much unturned and much untalked about. But today we're going to try to talk and do the best I can to explain the incarnation of Christ because Christmas is all about Jesus's incarnation. And as we wrap our minds around this profound truth, my goal is that as we do it together, as we wade through this together here this morning, that it will uh, linger on your heart and linger in your mind. And that that lingering would create uh, a sense of greater appreciation for what this season really is all about. So we're going to do that by tackling the incarnation's definition, the incarnation's significance, 
and the incarnation's hope. That's going to be our outline here this morning. That's where we're headed. And so my prayer is that this deeper dive would illuminate and, and, and expand your understanding of what this season truly is all about. So let's begin by looking at the incarnation defined. The definition of the incarnation. That word, incarnation, is a theological term that means Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh. It is the act of God becoming flesh in the person of Jesus, the Christ child. And, and this, there, there's so many scriptures that point to this, this truth, but probably none more clear than in the Gospel of John. John chapter 1 opens up with the discussion of, of in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and more than that, the Word was God. And then you skip down to verse 14, and we see the incarnation clearly defined, which reads, and the Word, which is a reference to Jesus in that passage, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So when you're talking about the definition of the incarnation, it simply is Jesus becoming flesh. God taking on flesh, becoming human in the person of Jesus. Now there is another theological word that runs parallel to this teaching of the incarnation, and it is the terms hypostatic union. Hypostatic union refers to the two natures of Christ, that Jesus is both fully God and he is fully man. And he is that together in one person. That's called the hypostatic union. The incarnation is Jesus taking on flesh, but remaining in his deity, although he limited himself to some degree, and then also being fully human being born, being found in human form. Now, this is extremely important doctrine to hold to because if Jesus is simply a man, then he is a liar. Because throughout the pages of the Gospels, Jesus clearly calls himself God. He identifies himself as God. And if he's merely human, then then he's a liar. But if he's all God then that makes his understanding of of what is taught in the pages of the Scripture false as well. For example, the Bible tells us that Jesus, in his humanity, is acquainted with our sufferings and our temptations. And therefore, he walked the same walk that we walked. He can identify with us. He can connect with us. But if he's all God, then that flies out the window as well. So the truth is, is that Jesus is God in the flesh, and he maintained his full deity as well as his full humanity. Our text this morning, Colossians 1, shows us this. And so let's begin in reading chapter 1, verse 15 of the letter to the church in Colossae. It says, he, referencing Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. A couple of words that help us understand and wrap our minds around the incarnation of Christ, image and firstborn. Let's first talk about the word image. Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In other words, Jesus is the one who makes visible he who is invisible. God the Father is spirit and therefore invisible. No human has physically seen God. Now, they may have seen manifestations of God, but they have not seen God. In fact, the Bible tells us that God himself is light and that his light is an inapproachable light. 
And, and Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 9, he said to them, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus is saying, listen, I am the expression of the invisible, holy God. I am God in the flesh. Now let's talk about this word image. It is in the original language, the Greek word icon. It's where we get our word icon from. And it means to us, it means a copy or a likeness. That's what an icon is. But to the Greeks, it meant an exact representation. This is why a statue could be a god itself, right? So, so when Paul uses this word, he's saying Jesus is an exact representation of God. Now, the writer of Hebrews, of the book of Hebrews, really helps us understand this in greater detail in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And this is what he says, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That is, God has revealed himself through his son, Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, Jesus, is the very radiance of the glory of God and is the exact imprint of God's nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The point here, as it speaks to the incarnation of Christ, is that Jesus is the exact imprint. He's the exact representation of God himself. Now, if we go back to the book of Colossians and we say that he is the uh, image of the invisible God, then we could say, well, wait a minute, what about us? Doesn't Genesis say that we are made in the image of God? Do we too contain that which is God within us? Well, you got to pay attention to even the smallest words in the pages of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 1, we are made in God's image. Jesus is God's image. You see the difference there. He is the exact representation. Therefore, he is Emmanuel, which means God with us. God among us. If you ever want to know what, G what God is like, look at Jesus. He's the exact representation of God. He embodies the, the fullness of God. The way Jesus loved people and the way Jesus dealt with people with grace and mercy is a representation of how much God loves you and me and how God deals with us with mercy and kindness. Take, for example, the woman caught in adultery. Remember when uh, the Pharisees brought this woman to Jesus? They had trapped her and were ready to stone her. And Jesus rode in the sand and each of the Pharisees began leaving, the oldest to the youngest. And when they were all gone, Jesus said to the woman, he said, is there anyone that condemns you? And she says, no one, sir. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Therefore, go and sin no more. Dealing with people with grace, mercy, and loving kindness. But also in Jesus, do we not only see the grace and mercy of God, we see the righteousness and the justness of God. Remember when Jesus entered into the temple and the money changers there were making massive profits and exploiting people? And what did he do in that moment? He overturned 
the tables of the money changers. And he declared, my father's house is to be a house of prayer, but you have made it to a den of robbers. He was enacting justice, the righteousness of God. And what we have in Jesus is the exact representation of God that shows us the perfect union of God's loving kindness and his righteousness and holiness wrapped up into one. Therefore, we are to imitate him, although we will never be able to fully imitate Christ. We are to strive. The Holy Spirit's work within us in sanctification is to make us like Jesus, that we become like him. And that's what is wrapped up in the word image. Now let's talk about the word firstborn, because this plays into the incarnation of Christ. Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that he is the firstborn of all creation. Now it's vitally important to understand the word firstborn, because there are entire religions that have taken this out of context and created a false doctrine and false practice. For example, Jehovah's Witness deny the deity part of Jesus. They, that's because they say that he is a, a, a firstborn. He is a human, right? The, he, Mormons say that he became God, so that therefore we can become God. And what they've done is they've taken the, the firstborn to mean birth order. And if it means birth order only, then yes, we can become God. But it doesn't mean that. And there are three reasons why that belief system is in error. First, firstborn doesn't just refer to birth order in the Bible. We have a tendency to read that and to think like in my family, well, Carson is our firstborn. Therefore, she was the first one of many children. She's the oldest of our children. And it is true that we are adopted by God and therefore we are children of God. But here's the truth of the Bible. And here's the truth that we need to know and understand. There is only one begotten Son of God. That is, that is the Lord Jesus himself. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his what? His one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We cannot see this mentioning of Jesus being the firstborn and take it strictly from the human perspective to say, well, God has many begotten children, therefore we can become God. No, there is but one that is that way. All right. The second reason that we are to hold on to this view of firstborn is because firstborn is a position of prominence. Because firstborn in this case doesn't refer to birth order, it is a reference to Jesus' position of prominence. You know the Old Testament provides examples of this very case where the actual literal firstborn in the family did not receive the prominence of being firstborn, the position of being firstborn. Let me give you a few examples. Jacob and Esau, Ishmael and Isaac, and Manasseh and Ephraim. Joseph had Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh was the literal firstborn, Ephraim the second. But Ephraim re received the benefits of the firstborn by way of position. Jacob was born second. Remember, Esau was his twin, but he was holding on to his hill, right? But he was literally the secondborn. Yet it is Jacob that received the birthright. He was in the position of being firstborn. And then Ishmael and Isaac. Remember, God came to Abraham and he said, hey, listen, you're going to have a son. I'm going to make you into a great nation, right? And, and so Abraham took matters into his own hand and, and they had Ishmael with his servant Hagar, 
right? He was born first, the son of Abraham, but he was not in the position of being prominent. It was Isaac who came later by way of his wife, Sarah, that is the promised son of God. My point is, is that Jesus being the firstborn is not a reference to him being one of many begotten children of God. No, he is the only begotten God in the flesh, the son of God. He is not like God. He is not a God. Jesus is God. This is extremely important to to know and understand. But there's a third reason to believe that. Thirdly, is that the context provides clarity here. Let me give you an important Bible lesson. When you're reading your Bible, the way you study your Bible is this. You let Scripture interpret Scripture. If you don't, we are on dicey waters. Because you could take a verse or even a fraction of a verse and build an, a theology in error. Let me give you a case in point. Jesus says that if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Okay, all y'all have two eyes, and I know your right eye causes you to sin, right? And so we don't take it literally in that case, but if we were to, because of the context of the, of the Scripture, if it were to point to that, then we would all be without a right eye. You see the point? And so we've got to let Scripture interpret Scripture here on what firstborn means. How do you do that? Look at the context that the verse is written in. That was verse 15, firstborn. Context is verses 16 through 19. So let's read it together. Paul continues, says, For by him, being by Jesus, all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything we might be, that he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. These verses tell us some key things about who Jesus is, so that we don't come to the wrong conclusion about his incarnation. First of all, Jesus is the agent of all creation. These verses tell us both what we see and even that that we cannot see that is invisible. We also learn that Jesus is before all things. Now, isn't that interesting? To have done that means that he had to be God. Because if he's not God, then the creator of the creation would have to first be created. But that's not the case. Jesus being before all things is talking about the pre-existence of Christ. Now, some of your minds just went, what just happened there? How did we get there? Jesus was not created when he was born as a baby. He entered the world from heaven through the Christ child. Jesus existed before his birth. That's because Jesus is God. And God in triune form, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, has existed into what is called eternity past, means it goes on forever. They've always been. And they will continue to exist on into eternity future, meaning there is no end to God. That is the case of Jesus. Jesus is the agent of creation. That means he was predates creation. means he always was. In the book of Revelations, he says, I am the Alpha. I'm the beginning. That's the first letter in the Greek alphabet. Now, we may say, well, then was he created then if he's the alpha? Because then that was the beginning, his beginning. No, what he's pointing to is he said, I am the, I'm the one that kicked this whole thing off. 
I existed before this. I created the world. I was the agent of creation. And then he says, I'm going to be the omega. Well, he's not saying that there's going to come to an end to everything. No, there's going to come an end to the earth, right? And there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And we're going to live with him, those of us that are in Christ, on into eternity forever, right? Jesus is preexistent. Jesus is eternal. Why? All that to say, Jesus is God. He's not like God. He's not a God. Jesus is God. And the incarnation is powerful enough of an image to communicate that to us. All that to say, Jesus is the exact representation of God. He is God incarnate, God in flesh. By the way, if you need a term to help you hold on to this word incarnation, think carne asada, right? Flesh, meat, right? He's God in flesh. How's that for this hungry crowd here tonight or here to this morning, right? All right, so We've looked at the incarnation's definition. Now let's look at the incarnation's significance. What is the significance of the incarnation of Jesus? Why is this important? Why should we even begin to wade in these waters? What is the purpose of it? Well, there are three ways that the incarnation is significant. I want to mention those to you today. First is that the incarnation fulfills prophecy. The means by which the Messiah came was not an accident. It was not a last-minute decision where God said, oh, you know what, i got to enact this plan. Now, this was the plan from the very beginning, and God foretold it through the prophets hundreds of years before Christ's arrival. The incarnation was God's plan from the very beginning. It was predicted in the Old Testament that God would take human form by way of a baby. Let me show it to you. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, which was written in uh, approximately 730 B.C. 730 before the birth of Christ. This is what the prophet says. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In this verse, Isaiah foretells of a son, but no ordinary son, because he gives him titles. And these titles are references to deity. I mean, he says right out that this child will be mighty God. This child will be everlasting father. So all the titles that Isaiah uses point to Jesus' deity. Therefore, he foretells of God taking on flesh. And so the incarnation of Christ is a fulfillment of prophecy that was written over 700 years prior to his arrival. If Jesus is not God in the flesh, then he is not the foretold Messiah. But because he is, it fulfills prophecy. Second reason that it's significant is that it demonstrates Jesus' humility. It shows Jesus' humility. See, Jesus is not the typical king. He can't be. He's the king of all kings. Jesus doesn't require pomp and circumstance like little old earthly kings require it. No, the incarnation of Jesus taking the place in the way in which it did in a stable in a remote village called Bethlehem demonstrates Jesus' desire to serve rather than to be served. In fact, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus tells us that. He said, I didn't come to the world to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus is no ordinary king. He's the king of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords. And Philippians chapter 2 describes the humility 
of Jesus. Look at verses 6 through 8 of Philippians 2. It says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be understood. But rather he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So in this action, the incarnation, it actually distinguishes Christianity from all other world religions. This very act distinguishes Christianity from all other religions. You say, how do you say that, Pastor Chris? Well, think about it. All the religions of the world, except for Christianity, is you striving to get in good with God, and that one day, hopefully, you've done enough to appease your God that he will let you into his heaven. It's what modern-day religious pluralism says is God's seated at the top of a mountain and we're on incredible trails just trying to make our way up the mountain in order to get to God. Religious pluralism would say, aren't all religions trying to do the same thing? No, Christianity is not doing that. You say, how do you know that? Because in Christianity, God stepped off of the mountain and entered into the bottom of the valley. It's altogether different. And so the incarnation sets it apart from every world religion that exists. And that demonstrates the humility of Jesus. So the incarnation is significant because it fulfills prophecy. It shows Jesus' humility. Thirdly, the incarnation is significant because it is necessary for salvation. Without the incarnation, Jesus is merely human. And if he's merely human, then his death is in vain. Because if he's human, that means he is born into sin like you and me. And if he's born into sin, then he cannot be the perfect sinless sacrifice that is required for the forgiveness of sin. But he is God incarnate. And so therefore, he does satisfy and meet those standards. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 tells us that, makes the point clear. It says, therefore, he, me, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that, in other words, for a purpose, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, which is a giant word that means satisfactory payment for the sins of the people. See, God had to become man so that he could pay the price for our salvation because it was impossible for you and I to pay. If Jesus is not God, then his death is meaningless and in vain. But Jesus is God, and the incarnation proves that he is God, and therefore he is the perfect once-for-all sacrifice for your sin and for mine. Praise be to God. So we've talked about the incarnation's definition and its significance. Now let's talk about the incarnation bringing hope. The incarnation of Jesus means that you and I have hope. Look at verse 20 of Colossians chapter 1. It says, and through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, it was in Jesus' incarnation and in his death, burial, and resurrection that we are reconciled to God. We are at peace with God. Why? Because our sins have been eradicated. And the peace that we experience with God, listen, hear me, is not a result of what we have done. It is solely a result of what Jesus did on our behalf. In other words, you don't earn your way to God. 
You don't earn God's favor. You have it because God loves you and it's demonstrated in his giving of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you ought to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But we have peace with God. And that's great news. That's hopeful news. You know, we live in a day, in a time where morality seems to be at its lowest. And news on the headlines only cause uh, distress upon our lives. We often hear about wars and natural disasters and crazy, tragic accidents. And we read all the time about the terrible state that people find themselves living in all over the world. People are oppressed. People are being taken advantage of. People are held in captivity. People live in absolute poverty. And I read one author this week in a devotional that says this, it often appears that our world has descended into chaos and disorder, leaving little room for hope for the future. I don't know if you feel that way. Oftentimes when we just read the headlines, it's easy to begin to feel that way. But let me tell you something, the incarnation of Christ, Christmas, is proof that we can be hopeful even in those circumstances. Christmas is a celebration that reminds us of the hope that we have in the worst of circumstances. How does it do that? Well, the backdrop of our current world, what could be expressed and described as our current society and world that we live in is not that different, if not exactly the same as the first century world when God moved and Jesus came. The people were constantly confronted with oppression, They were living oftentimes in captivity, devastation, and hopelessness. Yet it is in that moment that God decided to show up. God decided to move quite literally when Jesus took on flesh. See, Christmas is a reminder to us as believers in Jesus that God always moves, even in the most desperate of times. That's what Christmas means. And that brings us hope, doesn't it? But not only in the circumstances that we face, Further hope is found in the way God invaded earth. He came to the most obscure of places, little old Bethlehem. He came in the most desperate of circumstances, a stable. Why? Because there's no room for them in an inn. Now, I got a question for you. Let's say you were fortunate enough to have a room that day when a young pregnant girl, obviously experiencing labor pains, comes for a room and is told there's no room. What would you do? Would you give up your room? Would you go stay in a stable? I mean, that's a profound thought, is it not? I mean, I would hope that I would give up my room. But no. See, Jesus was to be born in a manger. And when he came, the people were the most oppressed. The whole reason why they're on their journey to Bethlehem is because of heavy taxation by Rome and the looming threat of King Herod. Listen, if God invaded the mess surrounded the very first Christmas, don't you think he can invade your mess and mine? You better believe it. Christmas is an announcement that God loves you. But more than God loving you, God sees you, even in your filth, even in the muck and the mire. And he came to that very location and brought his son Jesus to die a death that we deserve, not him. And that by faith and trust in him, we can have a relationship with this holy God and have hope even in the most desperate of situations. You know, I'm often asked why Jesus had to die. Why did Jesus have to die? I mean, if God loved us so much, right, couldn't he have just forgiven us? 
I mean, why a death? Why does the New Testament talk about the blood of Jesus? Isn't this the most gruesome way to show your love? Well, let me see if I can explain it to you this way. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, they ate the fruit that God told them not to. What did they realize? They realized that they were naked and ashamed. And so God said, I'm going to provide clothing for you. And in order to do so, what had to take place? An animal had to die. See, death, as portrayed in the Scripture time and time again, sin always brings death. The Scripture says, for the wages of sin is death. What we earn because of our sin is an eternal death. And see, God in His perfect justice, He could never just turn a blind eye to our sin. You say, how how is that the case? Well, let's think about it for just a moment. What if I did something totally horrific to you and your family, and you took me to court? And you presented your uh, case, and clearly I am guilty. But what if the judge said, hey, you know what? In this circumstance, Chris seems to be a pretty nice guy other than what he did to offend you. Let's just turn a blind eye to this. I mean, what would you say? Wouldn't you protest? Wouldn't you say, wait a minute, justice is not served in that case. Well, in a much more infinite way, God can't just turn a blind eye to our sin and destruction. No, A life was demanded for our sin. Scripture says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But yet God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died in our place. Why is there a death needed? Because our sin demanded it. And God in his loving kindness for you was willing to pay it. And it's all wrapped up in the Christ child coming. The incarnation of Jesus, God in the flesh, lying in a manger, in a stable in Bethlehem. God broke through the mess of this world and revealed himself and revealed his love for us. And that's the message of Christmas. That's why it's worthy for us to celebrate Christmas. But you know, we often miss Christmas for what it truly is, isn't it? We got caught up in all the trappings surrounding the Christmas holiday season. And the holiday cheer that seems to abound that we could miss Jesus. Don't miss Jesus this Christmas because this is the message of hope. This is the testimony of God's love for you and for me. You're listening to Trinity Baptist Church's Hope for the Broken podcast. If you would like to learn more about this ministry, visit us online at trinitytx.org. That's trinitytx.org. Here's Pastor Chris to wrap up our time together. Thanks for listening today. I'm so glad that you found this podcast. It is our prayer that you are encouraged and challenged by today's message. It is our goal at Trinity to lead everyone into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have questions about what it means to trust Jesus as the Lord of your life, we would love to connect with you. Please feel free to give us a call at 903-572-1959 or email us at info at trinitytx.org. 
If you are ever in the East Texas area, we invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 9.30 or 11 a.m. Thanks so much for listening today. God bless you. We pray that you have experienced hope today. If you would like to support the ministries of Trinity Baptist Church with a financial gift, you can do so by giving online. Simply log on to trinitytx.org and click the Give tab. Be sure to join us next week as we look into God's Word on Hope for the Broken.